This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong, and we are going to talk about a legal and political issue that I know we both feel strongly about, and I have a feeling a lot of you do too. This tends to be one of those topics where you just don't feel kind of meh about it. Passions run high on both sides. So Joe, what am I teasing? What are we talking about here? Jessica, hello. I can't wait to get into the nitty gritty of this topic. Today, we are going to be talking about the legal hot topic as of late, and that is the topic of vaccine mandates and religious exemptions for those. Specifically, we're going to discuss whether or not religious exemptions are a necessary part of these mandates. We don't need a whole lot of backstory here unless you've been living in a cave and eating grubs for the last two years. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected just about every aspect of our lives. By late 2020, a number of vaccines had been developed and were first beginning to be distributed, and that distribution widened to the general populace as the spring of 2021 progressed. Initial vaccine demand was high, but the specter of vaccine hesitancy, aided in no small part by the former president and many conservatives, slowed the rate of vaccinations nationwide over the summer. In order to push people to get vaccinated, governments on the local, state, and national levels began to issue vaccine mandates over the summer. Summer of 2021, a process that began to expand rapidly after the FDA gave full authorization to the Pfizer vaccine for Americans 16 or older in late August of this year. By early September, various polls showed that the number of Americans who say that they do not plan to get vaccinated was around or just under 20 percent. And although that number continues to shrink down from about 34 percent in March of 2021, health experts are still working to address vaccine hesitancy. The magic number for herd immunity, and now that's to protect the people who are physically unable to be immunized due to age or other underlying health issues, is different with each disease, Jessica. Measles requires about a 95% vaccination rate in a given population. According to the World Health Organization, quote, the remaining 5% will be protected by the fact that measles will not spread among those who are vaccinated. For polio, Jessica, that number is around 80%. We don't yet know the number for COVID-19, but according to the latest numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the United States is currently sitting at about 56.2%, which is better than nothing, but is not great. So, Jessica, the carrot is reopening society, attending concerts, going to sporting events, church services, or basically going anywhere without wearing a mask. And the stick is vaccine mandates. People have various reasons and excuses, setting aside health issues that preclude getting a vaccine for opting out. But, Jessica, first talked about the stick, which in this case is the law. What leverage does the government have for mandating vaccines? Let's start with the Constitution. One of the primary loopholes is the religious exemption. Doesn't the freedom of religion protect religious objectors? Well, off we go on our tour of the Constitution. And I'm actually going to do what I sometimes do in class, and I'm going to start with the punchline, which is that the law does not provide a roadblock if you want to have vaccine mandates that do not have religious exemptions, at least in my view and in the view of a number of other legal scholars. So let's start, as always, with the Constitution. The Constitution, again, not a roadblock for vaccine mandates that do not include religious exemptions. Do we have a strong history in our country, and should we have a strong history of protecting the freedom of religion? Absolutely. 
but that still doesn't prohibit this. And let me try and explain why. The First Amendment specifically guarantees that the government can't prohibit, quote, the free exercise of religion. In plain English, that has been understood to mean that every individual basically has two rights. That's the right to hold, at least within this context, you have lots more rights, but every individual in this context of the free exercise clause basically has two rights. That's the right to hold your own religious beliefs. That's absolute. And then the right to engage in actions or practices that support those religious beliefs without government intrusion. That part, Joe, is not absolute. That part is where you can have government intrusions. All right, so let me stop you here for a minute before we get too deep into Constitutionlandia. Why aren't the protections afforded to individuals under the free exercise of religion absolute? Yeah, so why is it that you have an absolute right to believe whatever you want, but you don't have an absolute right to act in a way to support that belief? And the answer is basically because of two buckets. One is general health and safety. I mean, let's just imagine for a minute that people decided that their religion indicated that they should, and forgive the example, but drive drunk, kill people. I mean, you don't get to claim, well, I'm doing this in furtherance of my religious beliefs. And the other bucket really related to that is it would harm the rule of law. So as far back as the late 19th century, the Supreme Court acknowledges this. They acknowledge that if you have a law that applies to everybody, meaning it doesn't just target people based on their religious views and actions, that you don't get to opt out of that law just by saying, my religious beliefs require me to act in a different way. So let's quote from the Supreme Court. I know everybody was waiting for this moment for me to quote from the Supreme Court from 1879, but here we go, folks. The quote is, suppose one believed that human sacrifices were a necessary part of religious worship. Would it be seriously contended that the civil government under which he lived could not interfere to prevent a sacrifice? So again, what does this boil down to? It would mean that laws are basically optional for people who are claiming a, a religious exemption and that each person would be in charge of you know, which laws they wanted to comply with and when they wanted to comply with those laws. All right. So we know the government can sometimes impose regulations. And Jessica, I'm very happy to hear that human sacrifice falls under that umbrella, even if those regulations burden actions taken in accordance with religious beliefs. But when? Yeah, this is the more complicated answer. And in 1940, the Supreme Court, I'm going to quote again, everybody said, conduct remains subject to regulation for the protection of society. So that's kind of the foundation here. Now, there's a lot of nuance, but let's start with the idea that you can regulate this type of conduct that might infringe on people's actions that they take in furtherance of their religious beliefs if it's for the protection of society. Let's just pause here, everybody, for a minute. Protection of society, we're living in a pandemic. We have vaccines that protect not just each individual who gets them, but others around that individual. This feels like it's the quintessential example of the government having a really, really important, a compelling interest for mandating vaccines, 
without exemptions. And there's really no other way to accomplish that, right? You can't say, well, I think that if you just wear a mask, then you will be protecting society in the same way. We know that scientifically that's just not the case. Now, let's fast forward to 1990, where the Supreme Court concludes that the government can, in fact, regulate conduct. In that case, it was ingesting peyote without an exception for an individual's religious beliefs. In that case, there were two people. They ingested peyote as part of a religious ceremony. They were punished for doing so. They said, we want a religious exemption. We should be protected under the First Amendment. And the court said, no, you don't. And you don't get this protection. So legally here, the key is to make sure that the law the government is applying or the action that the government is taking is neutral on its face and it's generally applicable, meaning it applies to everybody. You're religious, you're not religious, you're a member of one religion, you're not a member of another religion. It generally applies regardless of all of those facts. And it was in fact conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia who wrote for the majority of the court in that case And he concluded that if they were to rule otherwise, meaning if they were to rule that you could have First Amendment protection for ingesting peyote to therefore avoid the punishment, that, quote, it would open the prospect of constitutionally required religious exemptions from civic obligations of almost every conceivable kind, including, wait for it, Joe, compulsory vaccination laws. So we know at least 31 years ago, and this case is still good law, the Supreme Court concluded again that it is okay in some circumstances where the government has a really good interest, a really compelling interest, and there's really no other way to achieve its goals, that it can burn the free exercise of religion. All right. Was there any pushback on that Supreme Court ruling? There was. And that's why I kind of paused for a minute when I said, this is still good law. So in 1993, just a few years later, Congress really did push back on this ruling. They passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is known as RIFRA. A lot of states had their own versions of RIFRA. And it's really in response to this 1990 decision. And Congress tried to basically provide more protections for individuals under the First Amendment than what they thought the case offered. Now, There's a lot of kind of up and back between the Supreme Court and Congress that I don't think is super useful for us to get into, but I will say that my reading of the case and RIFRA indicates that it is true that the government can pass a neutral, generally applicable law if it has a really good reason for doing so, and there's really not a better way of accomplishing that goal. Now, again, what is a textbook example of that? I would argue mandatory vaccination laws without exemptions. On their face, they apply to everybody, all students, all employees, all customers, all people who want to, you know, walk into this particular space. And what's the motivation here? Health and safety concerns. It's not religious animus. And therefore, I really, again, I don't think that the Constitution provides a roadblock here. All right. So that's a quick tour of the constitutional arguments. What about federal statutes here? 
Yeah. So as always, we don't just finish with the Constitution, or as often as the case, we don't just finish with the Constitution. So when it comes to the workplace, let's focus now just on the workplace, just on the employer-employee relationship. Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act also kicks in to protect employees from discrimination on the basis of religion. Now, what does this require when it comes to vaccine mandates? Basically, employers have a lot of discretion as to whether or not they want to grant employees exemptions based on religious objections to vaccine mandates. And employers have to go through this two-step process. The first step is they have to determine if the employee has a sincerely held religious belief. Now, Joe, like that is difficult to look into anyone's mind. It's really awkward in a workplace. And, you know, you can ask somebody like, well, okay, how often do you go to church or temple or your mosque? Um, What other things do you object to? And it's a really imperfect process. And then the next step would be an employer trying to determine if that employee, in fact, does have a um, sincerely held religious belief, then is there a way to provide a reasonable accommodation without a hardship to the employer? Employers, again, have a lot of discretion. Let's take the example of United Airlines. They have said that their accommodation for their vaccine mandates is to put their employees on unpaid leave. And courts have actually upheld that as a reasonable accommodation. So it sounds like we may actually not even need them. Is there more evidence that we don't legally need religious exemptions to vaccine mandates? Yeah. So what else do we look to? We can look to state laws that require vaccinations for students. And there are about half a dozen laws. I looked at the website for the National Conference of State Legislatures, and they just updated their website. And it indicates that there are six states that say, students, you have to get vaccinated. And no, you don't get a religious exemption. That includes California. It includes New York, Maine, and Mississippi. And As I understand it, those particular laws have been upheld. Yay, California. I'm surprised to see Mississippi on that list. They seem to be an outlier in other data sets. But uh, here's a trick question, Jessica. How many major religions have come out against the vaccine? Uh, None. So all of the reporting I have seen indicates none. And this includes Christian scientists. They have actually not come out against the vaccine. Pope Francis has specifically said, I believe this is an act of love to get vaccinated. And so, Joe, it does bring up, I think, a really sensitive topic, which is that there are a lot of people who obviously feel incredibly strongly that they do not want to be subject to these vaccine mandates. But when every major religion, at the very least, either endorses it or doesn't come out against these vaccines then it's worth at least asking, and there's some research on this, whether or not the objections are truly religious objections or are they frankly more secular objections? Are they objections based on philosophy or politics, general distrust in government? Um, It doesn't mean that people don't feel just as strongly, but it does mean then that you shouldn't be able to say This is my religious belief. So this obviously, it's an incredibly sensitive area. Everybody's entitled to their own perspective. My only point here is that 
legally we treat religion as different from, for instance, a political objection. And so, Joe, now that we've hit maybe one of the most sensitive parts of this, we've done a tour of the Constitution, of federal law. We talked a little bit about state laws. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the reasons behind people's objections. And I certainly don't want to speak for anybody who feels this way. But what are your thoughts, Joe? I know that you have your own strong views on this. I do indeed. Uh, it's very simple math for me, Jessica, both literally and metaphorically. A virus cares not what your religion is, what color you are, what kind of car you drive, what political party you happen to belong to, or even whether or not you believe the virus itself exists. A pandemic is a reality and a threat that humanity has to fight as a united front. The longer we dally and drag our feet, the longer it will last. I remain absolutely stupefied to hear firsthand stories of people denying that the coronavirus exists from their deathbeds. Given the function of government to protect the general welfare of a nation, it is perfectly logical to me that vaccine mandates should supersede someone's so-called religious exemption. I think we all know that many of the people refusing to get vaccinated for what they call religious reasons have nothing to do with religion at all. And the origin for a lot of this conversation, Jessica, there was a great piece in Wired magazine published this week and written by Jalad Edelman titled Religious Exemptions for Vaccine Mandates Shouldn't Exist. And it set my mind to grinding on this topic. Edelman talks in that piece about what he calls a church-affiliated group in Washington state having vaccine exemption workshops for state employees and health workers and school staff. And this is just me talking here, Jessica, but I think that the religious exemption is too large of an umbrella and it serves as a proxy for someone's individual reluctance, as you were talking about before. In short, being Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Seventh-day Adventist, or whatever else doesn't give you the right to risk the lives of your fellow country persons or anyone on earth, really. So because you asked, Jessica, that's my rant. And for that part, what is your takeaway on this? Look, my takeaway, again, is that basically nobody feels like in the middle on this. People feel really strongly either way. I think, Joe, I speak for both of us when I say we feel really strongly that this is a health and safety issue. And again, when you have every major religion saying either, yes, please do it, or at the very least, no, we have no objection, then it's hard for me to see uh, why we would have an exemption for religious objectors in this case. Um, again, because we're not only talking about your own personal decisions, we're talking about how your decisions affect everybody else. And that's something we've seen over and over again with this pandemic, that we are so interconnected, we cannot make decisions just to affect us, that there is such an incredible ripple effect. And, you know, my other takeaway here is that this is legal, that if you look at the Constitution, if you look at the federal law, if you look at what states are doing, I really think you stand on firm legal ground. And this is also one of those topics, Joe, where I want to say again, we'd like to hear from our listeners. I'm sure that there are some people who do not share our beliefs. That's fine. And um, we want to hear from you about more topics that you'd like us to cover. It is Supreme Court season, so we have some of our topics set. And Joe, because this is October, I know one topic that we're going to be talking about somewhat to my chagrin. Do you want to briefly preview that, Joe? Oh, you mean that Halloween is the greatest holiday of the year? Is that what you're talking about, Jessica? With the pumpkins and the pumpkin seeds and the spookiness and the ghosts, is that kind of thing? Are you're you're not a you're not or you're a Halloween denier, aren't you? We need you need a Halloween mandate. I thank you for saying that. I think that um, after some 
introspection. We will do a separate episode as we did last time. I believe last time, Joe, it was election nightmares. Part two was our Halloween episode. This time there are plenty of other nightmares for us to talk about. But Joe, thank you for having this conversation with us. It's never a nightmare to talk to you. Yeah, nightmares galore, but this is not one of them. And Jessica, I know that you yourself wrote a piece about this very topic. Where can people find it? Uh, It should be up on MSNBC, and I am avoiding my inbox because I know people feel very strongly about this, but I will check it soon. All right. The good thing about an email inbox, Jessica, is that it cannot catch on fire, nor can anyone transmit a virus to you digitally. So if you would like to find Jessica on Twitter or Instagram, you can check her out at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day. You can find our podcast, Passing Judgment, on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Happy October, everyone. We will talk to you soon. Have a good one.